Good morning. Good morning. All right. Welcome to Calvary Chapel Iwakuni. It's always a blessing to be here with you all. Uh, it's good to see some uh, new faces and uh, some familiar faces we haven't seen in a while. Always a blessing to have the body come together uh, to praise and worship the Lord. Last week, we covered a powerful portion of Scripture where Paul had a bit of a personal retrospect, looking back over his life and how God had called him into the ministry, enabled him for the work of the ministry. Paul recounted what his life was like before Christ, how he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor of Christ and of his church. He was an insolent or a violently arrogant man. And yet, despite all of those things, okay, Paul found mercy in the sight of the Lord. God's grace and mercy were upon Paul, and they brought to him faith and love in Jesus Christ. Paul was reminded of the importance of the gospel and the fact that Jesus Christ came to save sinners, of which Paul self-identified as the chief of them all. And as the chief of sinners, Paul recognized that his life, well, it was meant to serve as a pattern as an example of God's grace and long-suffering and God's ability to reach even the worst of all sinners. If someone like Saul of Tarsus could be changed into a man like Paul the Apostle, well, then there is hope for any and all of us, right? Then we realize and understand that none of us are beyond the reach of God's love and God's grace. And then Paul concluded last week's text with a spontaneous declaration of praise in verse 17, a very fitting and appropriate response for all that God had done in his life. And we're going to pick up our study right where we left off, beginning at verse 18 and, and finishing off the rest of the chapter all the way down to verse 20. Okay, And so the title of our study this morning is going to be Fight the Good Fight. Okay, fight the good fight. Paul's going to have some exhortations for Timothy to follow as he engages in the spiritual battle for the souls of those who have been entrusted to his care as pastor of the church in Ephesus. And as we go through the text, my hope is that we would grow in our understanding of how we too are in a battle and how we too need to learn how to fight the good fight of faith. We all rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word. I'm going to read from... Uh, through our text from my Bible, I want to encourage you all to follow along in your own. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there's a number of Bibles underneath the chairs around you. Feel free to reach down and grab one of those so that you can follow along. Okay. Paul writes to Timothy, his son in the faith, the following in verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's the text for us this morning. It's a short one, but it is a powerful one and packed with lots of stuff for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning, the opportunity that we have to open up your word. Lord, and in like manner, as we've opened our Bibles, Lord, I pray that our hearts and our ears and our mind may be open as well to receive all that your Spirit desires to speak to us today. Lord, we ask that you would have your way today, that you would lead and guide us through your Word, and that we would be molded and shaped into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. After Paul's personal retrospect, looking back upon all that God had done for him and through him, Paul got back to the matter of hand regarding Timothy and the ministry there in Ephesus. He uses some familiar language here in verse 18, using the same kind of language that he started off the chapter with back in verse 3 and verse 5. In verse 3, Paul said, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. In verse 5, he said, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart. The word charge in verse 3 is the verb form of the noun translated as commandment in verse 5. They have the same root meaning. Okay, Here in verse 18, Paul uses, uses the same word when he says this charge I commit to you. It's the same word translated as commandment in verse 5. It's actually a military term speaking about a command or an order that's received from a superior and transmitted to others, which makes sense seeing as how Paul is speaking about warfare and fighting the good fight here in verse 18. Paul viewed Timothy as a soldier enlisted for battle and was giving Timothy a command, an order for him to follow. Now, many of you here are in the military or you were in the military at one time. And you know the significance of what it means to be given an order from a superior officer. You know, a failure to obey a lawful order is a violation of Article 92 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Okay? Violating Article 92 can result in a dishonorable discharge, forfeiture of all pay and allowances, and confinement for up to two years. Failing to obey is a serious offense in the military. Okay? Paul was giving to Timothy an order. Okay? The sense behind this word is that Paul wasn't asking Timothy to do something. He was telling him he had to do something. What Paul is commanding of him must be done. Okay? There were no other options. And what was it that Paul was commanding of Timothy? Well, our text tells us that Paul was commanding Timothy to wage the good warfare. Your translation may read, to fight the good fight. You see, Paul knew that Timothy was in a battle. There in the city of Ephesus, false teachers had started to come in, and they were greatly impacting the church, turning new believers away from the simplicity of the gospel. Timothy needed to fight for the faith to contend for it, to make sure that it wasn't corrupted by false teachers and false doctrine. As the pastor of the church in Ephesus, he needed to stand strong in the battle, to stand for the gospel and the faith of his fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. The enemy was sowing a counterfeit gospel, a false gospel, false doctrine that was causing all sorts of problems. And Timothy had no choice but to stand up against the enemy and to fight the good fight. You know, you guys, we too are in a battle. Prior to starting our study of the book of 1 Timothy, we did a topical teaching on the armor of God and the spiritual battle that we are in as a, a recap to our VBS. Um, it was uh, the beginning of August, right? So a little more than a month ago. The description of the battle that we are all in was found in Ephesians, which I find quite significant for this is where Timothy was serving as pastor. In Ephesus. 
And Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Ephesus, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul wrote about the battle that we are in to the church in Corinth as well, stating there, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God. We are in a battle, a spiritual battle that is both internal and external. Internally, we are constantly fighting against the flesh. Galatians tells us the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, right? They don't get along. They are at odds with each other. Galatians continues stating, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And so we are at war internally. Our spirit goes to battle against the flesh, and we are continually having to crucify the flesh, to reckon it dead every time it pops its head up. But we are also in an external battle. We fight against the flesh inside us, but also against the enemy outside and his minions that are all around us, the principalities, powers, rulers of darkness, and spiritual host of wickedness that Paul referred to in Ephesians. We have to stand our ground against the enemy that wants to take us out and cause us to abandon our faith. The enemy can come against us in many different forms, and so we must be on alert. We must be ready to stand our ground against the attacks. We need to make sure that as we do battle, that we are engaging in and waging the good warfare. Okay, that idea behind fighting the good fight or the good warfare is that our conduct is honorable and distinguishable and distinguished, excuse me. You see, there's the possibility that we wage warfare in a dishonorable way that we wage warfare in a wrong way or in a bad way versus a good way. We don't always fight the good fight, the honorable fight, the distinguished fight. And we do so when we try to fight this fight in our own strength. Remember that this is a spiritual battle. And we must engage it from a spiritual platform. We must rely upon the Spirit of God that dwells within us to fight the good fight. We cannot do it in and of our own strength. We will fail miserably if we try to engage the spiritual battle in our own strength, in our flesh. Okay? And so make sure you don't do that. Make sure you look to the Spirit to empower you and to lead you into the battle. But church family, there is another way we don't fight the good fight, and that is through getting entangled in the affairs of this world. Paul write again to Timothy in 2 Timothy, exhorting him, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He says, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that they may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. Being entangled in the affairs of this life speaks about getting caught up in the things of this world. The idea here is that you can become so involved in the things of this world 
that it actually prevents you from being effective for the Lord. It prevents you from being able to fight the good fight. Maybe that's chasing after success or promotion or rank or prosperity, fame, a life of ease, security. Okay, there are a whole host of other things this world offers and that we chase after. And we can get so focused on pursuing and attaining those things that we end up not fighting the good fight because we become distracted by a whole bunch of stuff that has no eternal value whatsoever. We have to ask ourselves, are we fighting the good fight? Right? Are we engaged in the battle? Or are we too busy chasing after other things this world tries to offer us? You know, what motivates us? What, what drives us? Is it the pursuit of the Lord or the things of this world? If we want to be good soldiers, engaged in fighting the good fight, we need to make sure we aren't distracted with the things of this world, that we aren't entangled in the affairs of this life, but that we live to please the one who enlisted us as soldiers in his army. And so Paul is charging Timothy. He's commanding him, fight the good fight. Wage the good warfare. And along with this charge, Paul also has some encouragement for him in verse 18 as well. Again, I'll read it. It says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Here in, these, here in this verse, Paul offers two forms of encouragement to Timothy. First of all, as Paul gave this charge to Timothy, he states, this charge I commit to you. Paul entrusted Timothy with this charge, and by doing so, he reassured Timothy that he had faith that he could do what was required of him. Paul would not have entrusted such an important task with just anyone. When Paul uses the word commit, he does so signaling the fact that he had given this charge into Timothy's care. Okay, and so Paul saw Timothy, one, as a soldier that needed to wage the good warfare, but he also saw Timothy as a son. And listen, no father would send his son into battle if they didn't think that they were ready for it. By committing this to Timothy, he was saying to him, Timothy, I, I believe in you. Timothy, I, I believe you're ready for this. Okay? And so this commitment to Timothy of this charge would have been seen as a comforting and reassuring statement to Timothy. Paul wouldn't send him into the fight if he didn't believe that he could and would be successful. Second of all, not only was Paul in Timothy's corner, but so was the Lord. Paul mentions the prophecies previously made concerning Timothy as another way to encourage him for this fight. Now, we don't know what these prophecies were exactly, but based upon other portions of Scripture detailing the life and events of Timothy and how God raised and chose others, we can get a rough idea of what may have happened when it comes to these prophecies. Later on in this letter, in chapter 4, Paul exhorts Timothy not to neglect the gift that is in him, which was given to him by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. 
we know from the book of Acts that one of the things that Paul did as he planted churches on his missionary trips is help the church establish some local leadership, elders to help with the ins and the outs of the ministry. And it would appear based upon what Paul writes in chapter 4 that the local elders in Lystra, the place where Timothy was from, had gathered around Timothy and laid hands on him in prayer. Now, at that time, during that time of prayer, a gift, a spiritual gift, was given to Timothy via prophecy. Now, when we, we have to understand what's meant by the word prophecy. We often think of prophecy as foretelling the future, okay? But prophecy involves, involves more than that, okay? Not only does it involve foretelling, but also foretelling telling, speaking forth a word from the Lord would be considered a prophecy, okay? And so it would seem that while the elders were laying hands on Timothy and praying for him, someone was directed by the Lord to speak forth a word from the Lord regarding a certain gift that Timothy was to exercise in his ministry. Which gift? We don't know. Okay, we aren't told, and, and we could maybe speculate and, and guess, and maybe it was the gift of teaching, or maybe it was the gift of the, you know, but we don't know, right? It doesn't tell us. Now, we are also told that Paul also had laid hands on Timothy and presumably prophesied over him and conferred a gift from the Lord upon Timothy. Paul writes in 2 Timothy, therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. And so there were multiple prophecies spoken over Timothy. According to 1 Timothy 4, the local eldership had prophesied over him. And according to 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul too had prophesied over him. And this, of course, makes sense for Paul says in our text, according to the prophecies, plural, previously made concerning you. And so Timothy had been prophesied over multiple times, and God had spoken and conferred upon Timothy certain gifts for the work of the ministry. And by reminding Timothy of these prophecies, he was reminding Timothy that God had called him and gifted him and appointed him for this service. Elsewhere, in the book of Acts, we read of how certain people would be called and set apart for the work of the ministry through prayer and the laying on of hands. In chapter 13, we read of how Paul and Barnabas were ordained and sent out for the work of ministry. It reads, now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manain, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, who we know as Paul, right? As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. That was how people were ordained and sent into the ministry back in that day. Listen, ordination isn't something that is garnered from an academic institution, okay? Just because you graduate from a seminary doesn't mean that God has called and ordained you to the ministry, okay? Now, don't get me wrong, okay? Attending an academic institute can help prepare you and, and, and equip you for ministry. But graduating from an academic institute alone does not mean you've been called and ordained for the ministry. Listen, ordination comes from the Lord. It is God who calls. It is God who equips and prepares for the work of the ministry. 
You see, when we as a church lay hands on someone and we ordain them and, and pray over them, all we are doing is acknowledging the work and the calling that God has already given to a person. You see, it isn't like there's some mystical empowering that comes upon someone upon someone when the elders lay their hands on them, where they weren't called, and then all of a sudden, because we prayed and laid hands on them, now they are called, and they're gifted, and they're going to be the best pastor, teacher, or evangelist, or whatever it is, simply because we did this, okay? That's not what happens, okay? Our laying on of the hands, okay, and praying over people is basically us acknowledging and recognizing the work that God has already done. It's us basically saying, yes, God, uh, we see what you've done in this person, and we agree with you, God, and so we're going to lay hands on this person, we're going to ordain them, send them out into the ministry. And what a great encouragement this would be for Timothy. Paul is reminding him about the prophecies that have been given to him, how God had called him and equipped him for this work. And let me tell you guys something personally, okay? just how important that is for a pastor. I myself have struggled with doubt and uncertainty throughout my years in the ministry. But being able to look back upon and to remember God's calling and God's words that were spoken to us have been what was needed to keep us moving forward. You know, I remember when Farrah and I were planning on moving to Okinawa to join the ministry there at Calvary Chapel, Okinawa. We believe God had called us and had prepared us for the work. We were set on going, okay? We had made plans to leave in August of 2003. And then, around May of that year, well, we found out that we were pregnant with Jonah, our second son. And initially, we, we thought that God was closing the door, that God was saying, nope, this isn't the right time, it's not going to happen. I mean, who moves to the foreign mission field knowing they are pregnant without any insurance and without even a guarantee of a job? You know, not, not many people do that, okay? The foolish ones may, okay? And I think that's Farrah and I's fault, is that we were the foolish ones. But, but the Lord gave us a scripture, and it was clear as day, as if God had, had parted the clouds and spoke directly to us. And it was actually first given to my wife, Farah. It was Luke chapter 9, verse 62. It says, But Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, we were set on going. Plans had been made. And then all of a sudden, because of this unforeseen pregnancy, we felt like, Oh, I guess we shouldn't go now. And, and God was calling us out through this verse. And basically said, Hey, I've called you. Why are you looking back? It's time to move forward and trust me. It was amazing, and we decided to, to move to Japan in August of 2003. God provided for us the funds needed to have Jonah in Japan despite not having insurance, and we've been living in Japan ever since. You know, I recall the scripture God used to call me to take the pastorate here in Iwakuni. It was First Chronicles chapter 28, verses 9 and 10. Pastor Rick had called me into his office in Okinawa. He said basically that Pastor Mike Silva, who started the church here in Iwakuni, was going to be moving back to the States, and then he wanted me to pray about moving up to Iwakuni. And I told him, I don't need to pray about it. I'm not going. Okay? <laughs> God has not called me to be a senior pastor. 
But Pastor Rick insisted that I go home and pray about it and talk to Farah about it, and so I did. Farah and I happened to be reading through the one-year Bible at that time devotionally together, and we came across these verses in 1 Chronicles 28. It says, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent and thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. You know, when I read those words, they were like a bullet to my heart. God was speaking straight to me. You know, I never thought of myself as senior pastor material. I always told God, God, I just want to serve you, Lord. I want to be that behind-the-scenes guy. I was there in Okinawa. I was kind of Pastor Rick's right-hand man. Whatever needed to be done, I made sure it got done, overseeing all the different ministries, being behind the scenes, working things. And I was like, this is, this is my lane, right? This is where you've called me, God. You know, I just want to serve you. And basically... God was calling me out. He said, will you serve me with a loyal heart? And, and will you with a willing mind? Oh, God. But, but I, I just couldn't. I, I tried to. No. But there was no denying. God was calling and God was saying, hey, serve me. Serve me, have a loyal heart and a willing mind, and, and just see, I've chosen you. Go and do it. <laughs> and so we did. You know, we packed up our things in, in Okinawa after being there for 10 years. We moved here to Iwakuni, and we've been here ever since. You know, being able to look back upon these words from the Lord, being able to recall specifically how God had called us to Japan, how he called us to Iwakuni, they have been lifesavers throughout the years. They have been what we have been able to look back upon and cling to when doubts creep in and when the ministry gets hard and when we get hurt and we just want to give up, we remember the words of the Lord. We remember the calling he has upon our lives. And this reminder from Paul to Timothy about the prophecies previously made concerning him and how God had called him and set him apart for this work would have been a huge blessing, a great source of encouragement for Timothy. And so, after telling Timothy of the charge to fight and giving him encouragement for the fight, Paul directed Timothy's attention to some tools for the fight in the first part of verse 19. It reads, having faith and a good conscience. Paul mentions here at the beginning of verse 19, two tools that are needed in order to successfully wage the good warfare. One is objective and the other is subjective. These tools are both doctrinal and moral. Okay, The first is faith. This is the objective tool based upon the doctrine of faith. This is speaking about what one believes doctrinally, the articles of faith that have been received. When Paul speaks about faith here, it's speaking about the doctrinal teaching of the gospel that's been passed on to him, all the tenets of the Christian faith. If Timothy wanted to have success in this warfare, he would have to stand upon and stick to the faith, the word of God handed down to him and entrusted to him as a messenger of the gospel. Paul, at the end of his life, would write to Timothy explaining how he had done what he is exhorting Timothy to do here. He writes in 2 Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Paul is telling Timothy that he must keep the faith. He must not take away from it or add to that which was delivered to him. Because this was, was, this was one of the big issues there in Ephesus. False teachers, they were not keeping the faith. They were abandoning the sound teachings of doctrine in exchange for fables and endless genealogies, according to verse 4 of chapter 1. They wanted to entertain the people with stories and speak about hidden truths and meanings found in obscure genealogies. This was such an important thing that Paul brings it up again at the very end of this letter, signifying just how important it was to Timothy. At the very end of 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes, Oh, Timothy, guard what has been committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradiction of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. And so he had faith. He had the faith. But not only did Timothy have to stick to the faith, but the other side of it was the need to have a good conscience. The conscience speaks of a knowing of oneself. People can say they believe in the gospel, and they can verbally agree with all the doctrine, but they are the only ones that know whether or not they truly believe, whether or not they are truly trying to live out the gospel. Of course, there is one other who sees and knows, and, and that is the Lord. Hebrews teaches us that there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom must, we must give an account. And so God sees and, and knows all. You know, you could fool a, a whole lot of people, but there isn't anyone who's fooling the Lord. Okay? He knows all. But other than the Lord, nobody can really know for sure whether someone else is sincere in their faith. Only the actual individual knows whether or not they are doing their best to adhere to the faith, to live a life worthy of the gospel, or, or whether they're just pretending, whether they're just kind of going through the motions. Having a good conscience was something that was extremely important to Paul. And he writes about it often. Earlier here in chapter 1, he wrote of the purpose of the commandment being love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Again, linking together faith and a good conscience. Later in this letter, he will speak of holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. In 2 Timothy, he writes, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience. To the church in Corinth, he wrote, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. And in Romans, he writes, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul was a man with a clear conscience a pure conscience, a good conscience. He lived out what he taught, and he was an example in every way possible. He did not say one thing, but do another. But not everybody could say such a thing, because some do not live according to their conscience. The Scriptures speak about how people can defile their conscience in Titus, Paul wrote, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good 
work. Later on in this letter, Paul will speak of how we can have a seared conscience. He writes, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Again, we see the connection between keeping the faith and having a good conscience. They go hand in hand. These false teachers in Ephesus had departed from the faith, were giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, and as a result, ended up searing their own conscience. The idea is that they made their own conscience numb. Okay? It no longer had the ability to, to feel, to react. Okay? And, and so there was no reacting to the conscience because it had just been seared like with a hot iron desensitized. These two tools, you guys, faith and a good conscience, are needed in order to successfully wage the good warfare. That's why he writes in verse 19, having faith and good conscience. The word having is written in the present tense in the active voice, meaning that the subject is actively performing this action. The word implies actively holding on to something. It's a continued possession Timothy needed to make sure that he held fast to the faith and a good conscience. Both were vital. For when one slips, it usually is going to impact the other. We falter in the faith and we abandon the sound doctrine and replace it with the lies of the enemy. Our conscience ends up becoming seared. If we confess to know the Lord, to have the faith, but deny him in our actions, in our hearts, we defile our conscience. We end up shipwrecking our faith. We start to change our faith, to change the doctrine given to us in order to accommodate our own conscience and the way we've been living our lives. You know, we say things like, oh, oh it's okay for me to, to do X, Y, and Z, or, you know, it's okay for me to do this. God is okay with this kind of lifestyle. God is okay with this kind of living, these acts, right? Those other Christians that, that don't believe this, well, they're just legalists. And, and, and they don't understand. They're just Bible thumpers stuck in the past. And they don't realize that we need to make the gospel more culturally relevant and allow for these things now. And we change the doctrine, change the faith in order to fit the conscience. But we can't do that. It will end up with you abandoning your faith, churning from God, and eventually shipwrecking yourself, and you become a casualty in the good fight of faith, which leads to our final section in verses 19 and 20. It's the casualties from the fight. Read with me. Verses 19 and 20 says, having faith in a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul here speaks of those who have rejected the faith and a good conscience and have shipwrecked their faith. The word rejected really doesn't do this word justice. It wasn't just that they, you know, rejected the faith or denied the faith, but that they completely thrusted it away. They have cast it off. You know, it could be used as a nautical term of casting off the lines that a boat is tied off to. The imagery is quite vivid here, in fact. Paul describes these people as being in a boat or a ship, and instead of remaining securely fastened to the anchor lines, they instead cast them off. 
They thrust them away as if to say, I don't need you. I could do this on my own. I'm the captain of this ship. And they end up crashing upon the rocks, shipwrecked. And Paul names two such men in our text. One was named Hymenius and the other Alexander. And we don't know much about these two guys other than that they shipwrecked their faith and blasphemed the Lord, the faith. We do read a little more about Hymenaeus in 2 Timothy. There Paul wrote, Shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Hymenaeus was a false teacher going around telling people that the resurrection had already taken place, that there was no hope of being resurrected to be with Christ after death. And his message was spreading like cancer. Okay? And so it needed to be dealt with. Paul needed to remove him, to remove the cancer that his false teaching may not continue to spread and to infect the rest of the body. There are a few other mentions of the name Alexander. We can't say for certain whether or not they are the same person. Alexander was a very common name during that time. But there is mention of an Alexander in 2 Timothy who was a coppersmith who had done Paul much harm. He asked God to repay him according to the works he had done and warned Timothy to beware of him because he had greatly resisted Paul's words. There's also mention of an Alexander in the book of Acts that was from Ephesus. Acts 19, verse 33. He was a Jew that was brought forth out of the riot that had erupted there in Ephesus because of Demetrius, a silversmith who rallied a bunch of other craftsmen who did similar work as he did against Paul because Paul had said the gods that they made with their metals were not real gods, and in so doing, they were, he was persuading people not to buy their wares from them. And so some speculate that this is the same man mentioned in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy in Acts 19, that perhaps Alexander may have first welcomed Paul when he came into Ephesus. He was a coppersmith there in Ephesus, and that he was chosen from amongst the crowd to act as a go-between of sorts between Paul and the artisans and this riot that had erupted in the city of Ephesus. The fact that Paul mentions how his faith was shipwrecked signifies that he at one time had been receptive to Paul in his teaching, but that he ultimately turned against Paul in a great way, causing him great harm. And not only that, but he became a strong adversary to Paul and the gospel that he taught. And so maybe this is all the same guy. It could be different people. We don't know for sure. But here we see in verse 20 that it tells us that he had to deliver these two over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, what exactly that means is difficult to know for sure, but it would seem what Paul is referring to is kicking them out of the church there in Ephesus, excommunicating them, okay? Removing them from the body so that they cannot continue to infect and affect the local body. Paul speaks similarly in the book of 1 Corinthians, where there was an individual that was living in open sexual immorality. He was sleeping with his father's wife, okay, his stepmom, 
Okay? Uh, Paul commanded them in the church of Corinth. He said, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, though we don't know the specifics of how this was done, I do want to point out that the end goal in both situations was the same. Okay, church discipline is always meant to be remedial, not punitive. The goal is to not to punish them, but to have them learn from their sin and be reconciled to the church. Himenius and Alexander were delivered to Satan so that they may learn not to blaspheme. The man in Corinth was delivered to Satan that the flesh would be destroyed, but his spirit saved it would seem, based upon 2 Corinthians, that the church discipline towards the man in sexual immorality worked. For Paul exhorts the church to bring him back in and to reaffirm their love for him in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8. And so, while church discipline is never a fun or easy thing to do, we do see that it is in the best interest for both the body and the individual, that this take place when the situation calls for it. It protects the body from the negative influence, and it hopefully teaches the person to repent and to come back to the Lord. Now, obviously, the hope is that it never has to get to that, okay? that we are all fighting the good fight of faith, that we are encouraged by those around us in God's calling and God's enabling for the battle, that we all hold fast to faith and a good conscience, and that we are able to say at the end of it all, like Paul, that we have fought the good fight, right? that we have finished our race, and that we've kept the faith. Amen? Amen. Amen.